welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about game development principles. How much players know, how much they want to know, and how much developers think we want to know. So Rob, this one comes hot off the heels of a story that sure made the Twitter uh, traffic. Two stories. Two stories, that's right. Two stories, that's correct. Uh, basically about sort of a game development uh, principle, like a common game development principle that was... Well, I'll, I'll speak first to... Uh, there's a story on Polygon. Well, there's a story on Kotaku, rather, that was about uh, Frustrum Culling. And it was about, hey, it was, it was part of a documentary about Horizon Zero Dawn. And Kotaku basically pulled a GIF, or GIF, sorry, I know it's an Idle, idle Thumbs podcast, a GIF uh, of sort of the way that the camera... Uh, renders the world. I mean, it's called frustrum culling, and I only have a rudimentary understanding of it myself, but it has to do with, oh, draw distance, how far can you see what objects are going to get drawn into the camera? Super basic, right? But it's like kind of a cool gif, and it and it shows, oh, you know, it, it kind of shows, oh, there's a camera here, and it shows what it will be showing in the world, what it will be rendering. And it came out, and a whole bunch of game developers started kind of making fun of it, saying like, oh, yeah, welcome to Frustrum Culling. Uh, you know, there, there were several devs uh, who were named in the piece. We won't, go, we won't go into controversy. Let's just say there were several developers who said, uh, made snarky comments about it, about like what basic low-level 101 game dev stuff that this represents. And there was a piece at Polygon that said, hey, generally... People don't necessarily know that much about the making of games, so it's cool when something uh, you know renders it in an interesting way. This is a this is a GIF. It's easy for folks to see how it works. It's kind of a cool thing. It's a visual. There was drama. There was a whole bunch of shit. We're not going to talk about the drama. The principle I think that we want to talk about is the kind of the core idea here being people who play games don't necessarily know a ton about how they're made technically. Uh, and we can see the evidence for that in a lot of things, including the other recent controversy about Mass Effect Andromeda, when people were like, well, the animators clearly should all be fired uh, when the animation was implemented poorly. And, you know, several devs came out and uh, I'll, I'll shout out the uh, the Dialogue Box podcast. It's a podcast that uh, Gwen Frey, it's sort of an ex-irrational dev now at the Molasses Flood. Uh, she does this podcast with a, a game journalist about development. She is a, an animator, like a technical animator and an animation lead. And she kind of, you know, said, not knowing this specific project, but hey, it looks like there were a whole lot of problems, a whole lot of technical problems that maybe had nothing to do with the animation team and the way games are made is complicated and blah, blah, blah. Um, so going on that, people don't always know how the sausage is made, so to speak. And I think there's a big disconnect here between what developers think uh, game players know and what we actually know, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think part of it is just the thing that always is sort of amazing to think about with re regard to games is that none of your intuitive understanding of how the world functions <laughs> applies to games unless somebody fit, like actually went in there and coded it to work that way. Exactly. And that's like, and you can't, like the the sheer number of things that have to be like invented in each game for them to exist is just absolutely freaking wild. A few weeks ago uh, on the Idle Thumbs podcast, somebody was asking about reflections 
in video games and yeah. why aren't there more functioning mirrors in <laughs> in video games and i've often wondered this as well like because I, I, I remember that in a lot of 90s pc games there were a lot of functioning mirrors where you'd see mm. your character sort of running around and then consoles showed up and then like you had a lot of frosted mirrors where some of the reflections just vanished or broken mirrors in the case of famously in uh, deus ex human revolution <laughs> right right so yeah. i always just sort of assumed that it was just like sort of a lack of processing power which is part of it but jake rodkin uh you know friend of the pod uh <laughs> Yeah, he gave an explanation though of like it's not it's there's actually a lot more to, like going on with generating a reflection, and so he explains that on on the Idle Thumbs cast in that like increasingly sort of like manic way that Jake gets when yes. he's describing a game <laughs> development problem that he does not like thinking about trying to implement, <laughs> uh, and he's basically talking about like how every mirror basically has to be like this freaking portal to a recreation of the level through this like reversed like through this reversed like rendering of the level plus your character in it and so you're rendering the level twice and it's this like ridiculously elaborate thing <laughs> to basically reproduce the effect of light bouncing off a reflective surface in the real yeah. world. Games yeah. can't do that. Gravity doesn't exist in games unless somebody made it exist. And I think that's the, you know, that that's the aspect that like I think players do like intuitively on some level understand this, but it is still really difficult to think about something as rudimentary as objects falling in response to gravity as being a feature that somebody had to create. That is still like a crazy thing to have to think about. But every game that you play, somebody had to basically create, like, recreate all those aspects of reality that are like the bare minimum for you to sort of buy into what that game is selling. Yeah, and it's really like it's it's really interesting to me. I have like a rudimentary understanding of of game development from making little tiny things and like you know working with unity for 8 years now i think and, and on a purely hobbyist level this is not i'm not saying oh i'm a game developer uh i i just have fun playing with the tools it's fun for me and i teach a little bit with it but like Often when people are talking about something like gravity or, or about these like really simple features that needed to be implemented in and, oh, it doesn't feel great or it doesn't feel right. It's because the developers may have used like sort of a pre preset uh, like set of tools like, oh, this is this is like a pretty standard unity asset, you know, for for like what kind of gravity or how fast it works or, you know, this sort of thing. And that's what's going on. Like your average 3D. um you know, first person puzzle box, whatever term we came up with for walking simulator is using a lot of those same things. And that's what people are talking about when it's like, oh, this crappy like unity thing. And it's like, well, yeah, a developer of this particular game really w wanted to like tell you a story or make weird architecture or do something else. They didn't want to go make a new engine for two years and then... <laughs> Like, just so, like, one thing that three people will notice is going to be perfect. Like, it's it's very, as my understanding is, it's very much a question of you choose your battles when you're, when you're making a game. And, like, 
the choices that are made are very interesting in a lot of ways because of what it'll actually mean for the game. But it's also like, dude, this shit is really hard and really technical. And that's part of of what, you know, the, the sort of disdain that some of those devs had for like, oh, we're, you know, showing this in a very sort of accessible manner. It seemed to me, and I could be wrong and, and call me out here if you think this is incorrect, but it seems to me like there is a a sense on the part of, of some developers, at least these folks, that because the game, the gaming audience is so passionate and because the gaming audience kind of eats up a lot of stuff about games and about, you know, the gaming audience eats up a lot of media about games, more so than a lot of other sort of hobbies and pursuits, that there's this perception that, oh, they know how it works because of that. Like, they're passionate fans. They know all about this. I, I'm sure they know Frustrum Culling. Yes. Yeah. Duh. You know, of course. They probably all made games themselves in Game Maker, at least, you know, knowing the, the very, very basics or something. And it's like, that feels to me like a huge disconnect with reality. See, I'm not sure I read it that way. Okay. Um, yeah. I think, like, I, I like, boy, I, I would love to read it that way, like I like, I would love to have your worldview on this front. Uh, that, like a lot of game developers who who tend to get snarky about this. And by the way, like most developers I know aren't this way. Like most people Not are like, hey, yeah. you're into, yeah. hey, you're you're curious about like the technical aspects of this hobby you love. Cool, that is awesome, right? Like a lot yeah. more developers fit like the Rami Ishmael. Uh, mold of like shared enthusiasm and and like providing resources to people and you know being being quick with like helpful responses. A lot yeah. more people fit that mold. What I what I saw sort of like uh, the polygon piece sort of calling attention to is that there there and this is true of basically any field, but you're going to have like specialists in a field who, when something that is very common knowledge to specialists in that field sort of makes its way out to the broader like the broader world, the broader conversation. There's going to be a lot of people who are like, yeah, well, duh. Um, like there's just um Alexis Madrigal just started this uh this this podcast called Containers, uh, mm. which is about international like cargo shipping. I guarantee you there's like a tugboat operator or like a <laughs> or a dockside crane operator who's like gonna listen to that and be like Look at these dumbasses. They don't know shit about how like cargo is shipped around the world. I'm sure that's true in every single field. Yeah. But where I think some of this comes from, uh, or what concerns me sometimes about it, is that there's this attitude that, or this implication that, look, you don't understand how this works. Ergo, you're not in a place to criticize or complain. Sometimes, like, like it's... It's your audience's ignorance being used as sort of a shield against their critiques. Right. Uh, which I think can be a little bit toxic as as well. Maybe not. Maybe toxic is true, too strong. Well, I think you're right. It. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, if it's something keeps people certainly. from. Yeah, it's a corrosive. If it keeps somebody from like exploring something they're passionate about, I think that's that's pretty shitty. <laughs> it's pretty corrosive, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I think you're right. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, but but yeah, I just I like I I look at some responses like that. So, Mass Effect Andromeda is a perfect example. A lot of 
people complaining about the animations and the way scenes like completely crumbled were complaining from a place that like they could not understand why these things were happening because they don't know how these scenes are generated, right? Like right. I think yeah. the layman and I mean hell, that that controversy even like taught me a lot of things about how things are animated these days. Yeah. Because like I didn't realize that a lot of like quote in engine cutscenes still have like still require as much hand animation or as or as much like hands on uh like tweaks to make them look actually natural and good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I always sort of thought these things would unfold according to almost like stage blocking, right? Yeah. Where like the character yeah. models could yeah. But these scenes actually require a great deal more than that. And we don't think about it because most of the time the job of the animator is to get out of the way and make these characters just sort of look lifelike doing their thing. The reason Andromeda you know became so noteworthy is that a lot of these these scenes just just totally sucked. Yeah. And that's and they uh, didn't get that sort of hand, you know, the the attention that maybe some of the major scenes really needed. <laughs> right. And so like, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of these animators who were talking about it and 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 Gwen Gwen Frey was was, was one of them. Uh, I think we we yeah, she had a roundtable discussion about it. There there was uh, that that ex naughty dog and ex um BioWare guy on Twitter who was oh, yeah, also yeah. sort of they they all sort of converged at this idea that it was um you know a lot of procedural animation gone wrong or at least procedural animation uh gone unattended Unfinished. Yeah, yeah yeah so does it matter but does it matter that like that your fans that the the players don't know why these things are breaking down i guess it matters when the assholes among them begin tracking down tangentially related animators to harass them for the for, yeah. for being stupid then it matters because then the, the then you've got like an ignorant hate mob uh that will like you know just find a scapegoat it matters in that case but as far as whether or not those animation that animation quality deserved critique it absolutely did you know you didn't yeah. need to be you didn't need to have the specialist knowledge in order to say this doesn't look right. Yeah, this this <laughs> or or these scenes are completely collapsing. Uh yeah. there was that one terrifying like Lynchian video oh, of um of a scene just completely coming undone. Uh and it started to turn into like Colin's bear animation. Uh like with a, with a just a frozen Krogan uh standing around a bomb and then like 5 minutes of silence on a loading screen that stuff was was disturbing that's i don't need to know how that got broken it's pretty right. broken right god it's mm, yeah and it's really like i don't know i maybe this is just me but i do imagine that a lot of of people who enjoy games at least the the very passionate players like want to know more about how games are made like pieces that actually dig into the way something is made in an interesting way i mean i like to read them and i and i think you know of course i'm in my own weird bubble and i acknowledge that completely but 
Even folks I talk to who like games and enjoy games and aren't obsessed with them definitely show an interest in some of those concepts. Like, you know, I'll talk to folks on, like, my ambulance about, I remember talking to them about, like, Pokemon Go and how it's doing some of the GPS stuff. And they were super interested in that. Like, and they're not, you know, super hardcore game people. It's just an interesting concept. The way something is made, the way something that you enjoy is made is is interesting, I think, to a lot of people. So, so I just... I just, I like things that encourage people to learn and encourage people to actually understand how that sausage is made and how, how the world works. And it, and it feels like a good thing. I don't know if, if maybe this is a very Pollyanna thing for me to feel, but wanting, you know, wanting people to learn and wanting people to know more about what they enjoy feels like a, a wholesome activity, you know, a wholesome thing. I provided an educational service today in giving you this GIF, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's useful for a whole lot of reasons even beyond that, right? Like, there's a lot of things that you can start to dig into when you look at the means by which a product was created. Yeah. And so, like, in the case of, in the case of Mass Effect Andromeda, you know, it sounds like in some ways there's there's two major things you could you could point at, right? That like, well, why why did this game come out kind of janky and, and awful at at launch in, in these respects? Well, one probably influenced by cost saving measures. There was, <laughs> or or maybe time saving, but frequently they're kind of one and the same. At some point, like someone at Bioware leaned really heavily heavily on procedural animation, right? Um, and ideally, you know, if, if there's a lot of procedural animation, maybe that's, that's fewer animators you have to hire. That's, that's fewer, that, that's fewer animator time that you have to book. The, yeah. the, the algorithm will generate more of what, what used to be done by hand and won't it be passable. And then the other angle that seems to come into play that a lot of people converged on is there was a quality pass that probably needed to happen that didn't, uh, yeah. at, at some point, like this aspect of the of project management was was kind of fumbled uh that this was not like the 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 cutscene animations in mass effect andromeda uh didn't get the the final quality control passes they needed yeah and that despite it being an off delayed and an off-delayed game that probably involved a fair bit of crunch, uh, you know, toward the end. So, I mean, you know, learning how these things come about also exposes you to, you know, labor and economic issues that exist in a whole lot of industries. And so that's another reason why it's good to have these things out in the open, to not like, to, to not have people out there with this like hazy, misunderstanding that products they consume just appear from the ether, but like (laughs) understand what people are going through to produce them. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really, really important point and a really, uh, a really, really good case for why this is like a a feature of service journalism kind of thing. Like it's, it's actually a feature that can be helpful for folks. I, I'm trying to think of other times where, where something like this really kind of hit, a point where it was like, hey, you should know a little bit about this. You should know a little bit about the <laughs> the making of this thing. I, it's a, it's just something that, that feels like it came up and comes up more often now that 
everything is so complicated. Like, I, I, I am so curious all the time about whether the labor practices of, say, like, the NES era are significantly different from the processes of this current era. Or anything in between. It doesn't need to be that extreme. But has our industry been like this for 30 years, I guess, is what I'm asking. And I, and I don't know. I don't feel like those things were reported on almost at all at the time. Maybe they were. And I, you know, obviously I was a child, but... I don't look back on a lot of like retro articles about, oh, did you know what the crunch was like on the first Mega Man? You know, that sort of thing. And I'm curious about that for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's this issue that often afflicts um, like game development retrospectives. And not only those, but a whole lot of fields. But, you know, survivorship bias. Right. Uh, is an issue. And I think a lot of the people who tell these like stories from back in the day in game development are the people who are still around to talk about these things, right? Like yeah. a lot of people probably waded through miles of garbage to produce like the best looking glass of games ever right. made. Yeah. And I would bet you a lot of those people didn't stay in the industry. But the people who are going to be telling you the story of Looking Glass years and years later are the people who stuck around in it, who loved it, and who have these positive memories. So I, I think you probably and they get... made successful games too, which is another really big. You're yes. not necessarily going to have a full price documentary about, you know, Simon's bullshit three. I don't whatever I fucking <laughs> made up a name, <laughs> you know, like some piece of shit game that no, nobody really cared about or whatever, like. These are for like successful, well-renowned, you know, games that made money and commercial success and and critical success and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's another kind of factor there. But I do wonder. I always get the impression that um, a lot of games made in like the late '80s, early '90s as video games are really starting to make like take these massive leaps forward. You hear a lot of stories about people, what we call crunch these days, right? Like people working just absolutely crazy hours, uh, you know, I was living in the office. But a lot of the recollections, and again, like a lot of these recollections are going to be shaded by nostalgia. But also, because you're on these smaller teams, everyone had a little more agency. Sure. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, if you were, you know, if you were the person uh, doing character art for, you know, say a, um, you know, say an early Bioware game, for instance, right? Like back in the Interplayer era. Yeah. If you're the person like doing character art for that game, that's your job. Like every character, basically, like is is something you've created and touched. Like that's that was your contribution, and you probably had a lot of like you probably had a pretty free hand. To yeah. do a lot of that stuff. And I think that does change it, right? Like, it's a lot easier to feel like if you're working 60 hours a week or something or, or more, it's a lot easier to feel that that is time well spent when you feel like you are contributing a valuable service alongside, you know, sort of your, your comrades in the trenches. And they are also all doing things that they have agency uh, and, and, and passion for. And I can't imagine that it feels remotely the same way the moment you're getting to these massive distributed teams where, you know, 
it's someone's job to model the fake office furniture that exists yeah. in a shooter right. level, right? Like, all right, you need to do four or five different versions of intercoms that are going to sit on these desks. Yeah. You cool with that? I've, I've had to have that discussion with my game design students who, uh, you know, who, who come to me and, and it's like, okay, well, what, I really want a job in the industry. I really want a job in the industry. I really, really want it so bad. And like, they have some modeling experience and I'm kind of like, well, you, you might get a job at a big studio where you can put the noses on the cartoon dogs. Like, that, that might be a thing that you do for a few years before, you know, moving up to actual, like, design and, and, and kind of having more creative agency. And But also you'll be on a team of 200. Um, and then they usually their faces fall and they're like, I could go indie, right? And I'm like, yes, but you should probably also have a day job so that you can pay the bills so you can live somewhere or have a rich spouse. Like it's a very <laughs> and, and like I say this not to crush anyone's dreams. Like I definitely tell them, like, if you believe strongly in yourself and you have a good plan, like I think you should do whatever makes you happy. I am not going to shit on anything. I I get to do my dream job. Like I am very lucky, but like it, <laughs> You do also have to go into these things with a bit of realism because this is a really difficult industry, right? This is a really, really, really tough, difficult industry to work in and to grow in. And we've all had friends who have burned the hell out of this industry as well or like never really made it very far. And it's it's really hard and I'm super sympathetic to it. Um, but it's also like... Man, the, the, to your original point, like the, the size of these teams now is so blinding and scary. And like it, it genuinely like gives me anxiety to think about <laughs> managing a project like that. Right. Like, oh. God, like just just like managing like five people is enough. <laughs> <laughs> like just oh my god the the idea of managing hundreds and hundreds of people on these like massive teams it is it is a fucking miracle that very large games get made and work at all sometimes yeah i mean a friend of mine and i can't remember which friend because we've got a couple really cynical game dev friends who <laughs> like are, are very quotable but yeah you know somebody somebody said that like all modern game development is like an old fashioned like ancient warship like they're all they're all like they're all like triremes right <laughs> they're they're all like viking ships and everyone thinks they're going to be the captain and almost everyone ends up pulling an oar yeah and and that's and, and that's the nature of the business and maybe that contributes to it as well that you have these reactions where where you where you see some of these reactions where people outside our little fraternity know not of what they speak right and that's a very it's a very easy way to sort of reclaim some power and dignity from that process yeah you know what i mean it's like you know we are talented specialists that we serve also that we survived kind of. yeah 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 there's i mean you know the questions are how many games have you shipped right that's kind of the, the measurement the measure of like how you know how serious how veteran a a developer are you yeah. um but but yeah um 
a lot of these jobs are insanely technical, require a massive amount of expertise, yeah. and are also and very fussy wrong. and small scale. Yeah, yeah. that too. <laughs> that too, and still go wrong in a million ways. Oh god, going to GDC and like I I did a micro talk once at GDC. I I was in the that's actually where I met Gwen, believe it or not. Like she also was doing a micro talk and uh at the animation summit. And I was like the non-animator in the group, uh basically. And like the the jokes that people make about like shipped games and like the the very like the gallows humor of it all. Like it just but like honest to god it reminds me of my friends in ems in a lot of ways of the like well you you're gonna see some dead bodies you know like just (laughs) you kind of have to laugh at certain things in the world and it is it is weird it is weird to me that like oh game development because it's this arduous of a career because it's honestly this hard to to live in an industry that's this competitive and also you know technically difficult like will breed that same type of 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 gallows humor as like a defense mechanism like it <laughs> that's crazy right like on on some level that's that feels so crazy i'm not saying they're crazy to have it i'm saying like the fact that reality is this way is crazy <laughs> but it is you know it's very ugh. i don't know if, if there's any takeaways that i have from this whole kerf- kerfuffle I have to stop saying the kerfluffle because that's the way I always used to say it. But kerfluffle. That's a good word. The kerfluffle is kerfluffle is really cute. I know it, it's like the 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 cute puppy version. Like it's kerfluffle, the puppy. Yeah, kerfluffle is definitely like a Pokemon you you get. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but if there's anything I can take away from it, it's hey devs, I get it. Your life is fucking hard, and I have a lot of sympathy for that. But but don't shit on people who want to know a little bit about what you do. Also, players, don't shit on game devs. <laughs> don't ever harass anyone, first of all. But also, maybe do a little bit of research before you get very angry about something. Mm. Both, you know, maybe maybe learn a little bit about... I mean, this is in terms of the, the harassment that the, the Bioware employee got. But don't, don't blame the problem on a, on a place that you cannot be uh, confident that the problem came from. Yeah, assigning like uh, blame for why something comes out that way, abs- absolutely. But you know, yeah. if somebody cooks a bad meal, you don't need you know you don't need to be a cook to to know something tastes like shit. No, that was um, Jerry. Jerry, yeah, just, he, Jerry botched. He puts it. tomatoes in everything, including ice cream sundaes. Like Jerry sucks. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, I like definitely do not be a a jerk on a personal level to to yeah. anyone. Like. Always great advice. Like, don't don't ever do that. Uh, but at the same time, like, I imagine it is inordinately frustrating for a developer to see something being really criticized and dragged and discussed as if it's something that any game should get right oh, when it's yeah. actually enormously complicated. On the other hand, when you're making a major release for a publisher facial animations uh you know cutscene timing all this stuff most people are getting this right that is now the reality we live in like this is something most players can and should take for granted at this point and while it is 
while it requires a great deal of like technical expertise to accomplish it, it's not like a favor the developers are doing <laughs> players. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, probably a very good place for us to to dip into our mailbag a little bit, our physical mailbag. It is a a uh, you know I've got a bag right here. I don't actually. We have a stack of like weekend thinking correspondence. Of it that way. What? We have a stack of weekend correspondence. Yeah, the lovely stack of weekend correspondence with a physical uh, letter opener that I just you know just slice across the envelope there, and there's nicely that nice you know that. Sound effect. I can't emulate it. All right. So our first letter comes from Will in Chicago. Will writes, hey, DNR. It was my birthday last Friday, and on a very drunken whim, I picked up Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Wildlands. In my own coverage of the beta a few months ago, I was incredibly turned off by its callous, oorah nationalism and insensitive depiction of Bolivia. In particular, uh, the line the main character delivers as she steals a cartel sports car. Oh shit, there are two bloody condoms in here. Well, at least it's a sweet fucking car. I have never seen a piece of entertainment be so fucking tone deaf, especially about real issues like endemic rape in developing countries. Yet somehow, there I sat in my computer chair, watching Wildlands download tequila in hand. Why I decided to jump on Wildlands is due to my unhealthy need to see every major release and tequila. But there's the rub. About 15 hours later, I realize I actually really like the game. Mm -hmm. The freeform stealth and combat is pretty uh, competent. The landscape is absolutely beautiful. Not brilliant, but good, despite its despicable politics, of course. Setting aside my own beliefs wasn't easy, though. It meant a lot of holding my tongue and muting dialogue in spots. Moreover, having to swallow the pill that is my own financial support of a company that would make a game this insensitive. Question, what pieces of entertainment have you found yourself falling for despite how much it grates against your beliefs and values? By what means were you able to look past your personal politics? Cheers, Will from Chicago, uh, and P.S. congrats to Rob, and Baby Makes 3, Zachney, for joining Team Waypoint. <laughs> well, well, let me tell you about ethical consumption under capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. <laughs> I, I think... I mean, God, there's so many things that you just yeah. have to make allowances for. Not even make allowances. Look, you have to make you have to look. You have to make honest bargains with yourself about what you are choosing to care about on a given day, what you are willing to tolerate. Um, and if you're like, if you're honest about those those bargains you're making with yourself, then I I think you're in a good place. The, it, it's not the... What, what concerns me is the the uncritical consumer of shit like this yes, who's yes. just like, oh, rad, I'm just going to wreck this country. Ha <laughs> ha, cool sports car. And who is, who is like aware of what that means too. Not like a seven-year-old, but like somebody who knows that the bloody condom means rape, basically. Like yeah. somebody who understands what that means and doesn't give a fuck. Like that's, yeah. Yep. I hear yeah, like I, I have very little patience for 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 that attitude, but there's a lot of things that you've just like that. I'm not saying you've just got to because you you don't have to. You can always just choose not to consume something. But there's a lot of things that I enjoy that I like that that entertain me that I know have a lot of repulsive aspects to it. Like one of them is gonna be one of them is sure as hell gonna be my uh be my weekend project 
Yeah. Uh, but I like I've been watching a lot of Billions uh, sure. of late. Well, 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 I will justify that that later. Don't y'all worry, because <laughs> uh, I do feel like that needs to be justified on some level. But but Danielle, I'm just curious. Like, have you like fallen for stuff that? Every oh, day you're just you're like this isn't good, but um, but but it's good in the ways I like it to be. I mean, the one I struggle with the the most probably on like an, an actual daily basis, and I don't listen to him that much anymore. But I, God, Rob, this is like it's hard to say this out loud. Mm-mm. Um, I I sure liked me a lot of Eminem albums when I was a teenager and still listen to them a lot in college when I was very fucking aware of, of, you know, I mean, Danielle in college was nowhere near as politically woke as Danielle, you know, at like age 25 working for the ACLU, but I was still well on my way. Okay, let's put it that way. His problems were not secret. It was not a fucking secret that he was rapping about wanting to kill his wife and do a whole lot of raping and a whole lot of other things. And, like, I've always thought, like, oh, does it make me legitimately a bad fucking feminist to to really like a lot of this music and listen to it? And I could, like, quote a lot of it. Like, it's really fucked up. And I honestly don't have a good answer for that because I don't feel good about that, if that makes sense. Like, I don't feel like I can hand wave away... Uh, the fact that, like he was he he sure was fantasizing about a lot of misogynist bad shit right like there there's no two ifs about it like it that's pretty fucking misogynist and I really enjoyed the music and I really don't think it makes me a good person to really enjoy the music and I'm not I actually don't think we can fully separate the artists from their art. And I know a lot of folks say like, oh, so, you know, sometimes you just got to separate those things, man. And I'm kind of like, I understand that. I don't know if I can fully do that. Like, it's- I sure loved Orson Scott Card's sci-fi novels before I knew he was an insane homophobe. And like, I have a hard time going back to those now, knowing what I know. And, and I can't really fully separate the artist from the art there. And I think like, it's especially I, hard when you can see those issues in the work itself. For sure. Yeah. Like. Like, how do we feel about Roman Polanski? Like, it's. <laughs> and I mean, the problem is like. So Roman Polanski is interesting in that I think. I haven't watched a ton of his movies. I watched like Chinatown. Uh, yeah. I the mean, Chinatown is is Ford in Paris and the pianist. I'm not sure what right. else I watched by him. Yeah, yeah. But those are movies where, like, you're not watching them and you're like, "Oh yeah, totally." Like, I suspect the person behind this movie did some really messed up things. Right. Like, right. I suspect the person, like, from this movie's themes, I could totally see where the person who made it drugged a very young girl. And raped her, like right. yeah. that's so. That's not something that's going to be present in the watching of these films. So like I can still watch Chinatown and be like, "This is this is a terrific movie. It's fantastic." Does make the whole uh, John Huston, uh, Faye Dunaway uh, situation a little more, uh, a little more eyebrow raising, I, I, sure. I suppose. Uh, but but then but then there's this point where like Rowan Polanski appears in the movie. Yeah. He's the guy who cuts uh, Jake Giddis's nose. Yeah. And, and there then he it's is. like, there he is. That guy's a fucking rapist. Like, what, like, you know? 
Well, and so then you've got Woody Allen, yeah. um, who is a different case is 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 a different case to an extent because like it is so clearly well known and documented what happened with Polanski, whereas like there's still argument around around Allen though like boy look at the fact it don't look good uh what what, it, what is known about that case but yeah yeah but so there's this there's this cloud hanging over Woody Allen uh but because of uh the issues with with um uh with with his daughter and then uh you know the, the sort of the origins of his of his current marriage yeah um so a movie where that gets complicated for me is like where I'm watching crimes and misdemeanors mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And crimes and misdemeanors is about a guy who basically he commits a murder, gets away with it, and basically concludes that like morality is just a lie we tell ourselves to try God. to like yeah. make sense <laughs> of the world. Yeah. And so but there's the scene at the end of the movie where he lays out this hypothetical for this person who commits a crime and gets away with it. He lays it out to Woody Allen's character in the movie. <laughs> but Woody Allen is writing this entire movie. He lays it out for the Woody Allen played character <laughs> and asks, like, so what does it mean? Like, what does morality mean in this situation? The Woody Allen character tries to explain that, like, well, that character's still damned by what he did. Uh, you know, obviously he didn't get away with anything. He still carries the stain of that on, on his conscience. And the guy who commits the murder just sort of smiles and chuckles and says, you've watched too many movies. <laughs> and that's, and by the way, I think this is one of his best movies. Like that sure. movie is a freaking masterpiece. And like, to an extent, like to have that work of art in my life, like I can still like enjoy it and, and adore it. And I, I'm, I'm glad that exists in the world, right. but it is now also freighted with all this other context where I'm watching these two characters have this scene in this movie and it has this one meeting within the reading of the film, but then it has this other reading in the arc of the man's life and career that's extremely now, it's extremely freighted now in a way it was not meant to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I don't have an answer. It's, it's something I still honestly do struggle with, especially for stuff that's, that's like real bad. And, and <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about this and I'm now thinking about like, the Chappelle show that I thought was fucking hilarious, you know, when I was in college and Chappelle's latest sort of comedy special is like just reading reviews of it. I haven't seen it yet. So it's like, take it with a giant grain of salt kind of thing. But like, apparently it's like super homophobic and and trans misogynistic and all this other stuff. And you know, you look back and, and there is this totally homophobia and misogyny in like some of his earlier stuff that I maybe. I was somewhat aware of, but I didn't care at the time. Like, 21-year-old Danielle knew about things, but didn't necessarily care about them. And now cares very deeply and is kind of like, well, fuck. You know, <laughs> like, sitting here, like, I I do have a hard time enjoying certain things now because of it. And it's, it, I think it was Justin McElroy, somebody in my life that I think was Justin McElroy, said it once that like being sort of aware of certain issues in the world is like the shittiest superpower when you're like a me- when you're in media because it's like you can't not see certain things now you know like yeah oh i can't not see how something is like 
super sexist, right? I can't not see how something is super racist. Like if you go back and watch plenty of older films, like, you know, classic films, there's so much fucking racism just dripping out of every pore. Oh. And it's like, oh, you know, this is this is a classic film. It has worth, it has value, certainly, uh, for the things that it's doing. But like, it's easier when it's from a, a, a time long ago and far away, right? But when something is like from a mo- from the modern era, or you know, within the last fifteen years or so, and you're and you're watching it, and you're like, I don't, I can't, I'm really uncomfortable, I'm really fucking uncomfortable, especially if you're enjoying it, right? I, I feel like, oh, if you think it sucks and you hate it, there's not even a, a tension there. But if it's something you're like, oh, this is really funny, or this is really insightful, or this is really beautifully shot, man, it makes me feel like a bad person. You know, it's it's fucking valid to feel like a bad person. I think so. <laughs> There's a lot of, um, yeah, I mean, that those are, I think with older stuff, it's still easier to deal with because you can, that's just sort of the, the, again, you can sort of bargain that with yourself, right? right. Where you it's can be like, like, oh, 80 years ago, yeah, there, you know, policies were different or, you know, the certain attitudes were different. Like, you can very easily kind of remove that from from the equation. It's easier to compartmentalize that, I think. And probably a hell of a lot easier for me as a white dude. Like, sure. <laughs> I can, like, there is a movie that I love and watch just about every year uh, called Remember the Night, okay. which yeah. is a Preston Sturgis script, uh, but, like, it just is a movie that speaks so to my heart. It is about a New York attorney, a New York attorney who goes on this road trip with a criminal um, played by Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, so it's oh, it's, it's Fred McMurray and Barbara yeah. Stanwyck. Oh god! Uh, yeah. Like years before Double Indemnity, totally. and it's this road trip movie because it turns out that even though they're on the opposite sides of this prosecution, they're both from Indiana, and I'm from Indiana. And What's so the it's name this, of this like, again? I want to remember the this. night. Okay, thank you. And I think it is a great movie. Uh, it is, and this is also a very tough movie uh, in some mm-hmm. ways. Like it is, you know, there's there's questions about like what is you know, justice versus punishment, what role is, like, is rehabilitation even the purpose of the criminal justice? Like, it's asking probing questions. Yeah. Uh, back in, like, 1940 when this thing was made. Yeah. And I think it's a brilliant movie. Holds up to this day. But in the first 25 minutes, you meet the movie's only black character. Oh, no. Uh, which I want to say his name is Rufus. Mm-hmm. And he's the butler for Fred McMurray's character. And it's a very witty, it's a great movie. It's a witty script. And then you got Rufus in this mm-hmm. thing with, you know, his, his, his big staring eyes and quivering lip and mm-hmm. his like cringing before the white characters and his simplicity and simpering. And it's like, it's real bad. It is a straight yeah. shot, just uncut, of like the way African Americans were sort of dehumanized and denigrated um, wherever they appeared in movies. Yeah. And by the way, that happens in a lot, in a lot of Sturgis movies. By the way, sure. like there's, there's frequently a scene where, you know, black characters end up sort of thrust into this role. Uh, but. I can make this bargain with myself where it's like, well, it's it's a movie from this era and you get past the scene and then you got a, a great movie ahead of you. Mm-hmm. I can make that bargain. Were I an African American? I don't know that I could. I don't I like right. I don't know if I could really 
get with the rest of that movie's message if how the if the movie's made clear how it sees people like me. Yeah. God. Yeah. But I think closer to home, like, what about stuff that doesn't have these um sort of these historical outs? And also maybe doesn't have the uh complications of the artist. So like an example might just be uh, Resident Evil 5. Oh, the, yeah. The one but, in Africa. Yes. Where it's like, let's, let's, like, I don't know if you, so, so basically, I'm yeah. at, like, do you have a Resident Evil 5 type thing in your life that you, you, like, you really like, but it's also using, like, all this loaded imagery and shit? Like, the, like what about in cases like that where it's not that the people behind it are evil? Uh, yeah. It's not that it has like an explicitly awful message. It's just that it is it is playing on ugly stereotypes and interject injecting a lot of really problematic material that doesn't need to be there. And yet, fundamentally, you like what it's doing. Like, yeah. do you have any of those in your life? I feel like I have a lot of that with horror movies that I love and still think they're kind of sexist. <laughs> like a lot, you know. Um, you know, like the classic Halloween, the the very classic slasher movies that I really like and enjoy as a movie. And I there's so much feminist theory on this stuff for sure. But but and there is of course the the pretty awesome theory that like horror movies are essentially about believing women when they're afraid of something. I just saw like, a piece about that. Yeah, like Laura today, Hudson I think really wrote something awesome about that. So so it's it's more it's like complicated basically but i think there are a lot of horror movies that i enjoy and like and have have really really gotten into that have a lot of complications when it comes to like sex and sexuality and and gender on the whole like it god i'm trying to think of like a really good example but like a lot of hmm, like there's a whole reading of of the thing and the thing is one of my favorite movies like i fucking love the thing i think it's great but there's no women anywhere in that movie and like the the only time women are referenced it's like uh mccready calling the computer a bitch basically <laughs> like it's very like this is a man's movie you know like very very much that sort of thing is going on that i think is like yes yeah, it's, it's a little weird makes me feel a little weird i still love this movie to death like it's it's not doing anything very specifically gross which i guess is is helpful <laughs> in that regard but yeah i mean there i'm, I'm trying to think of a, of a better example honestly of, of like you know any anything that does uh rape and sexual assault is already going to be hard you know it's going to be it's going to be a little difficult i can definitely watch that because i i Personally, I can, uh, but something like the fall it is difficult, you know, in that way. Like, there's a really brutal uh, the first the first episode, just the first episode, hard yeah. pass. Like, got to the end of that one, and I was like, well, that was a snuff film. I didn't want to see. Yeah, for sure. And and like we were talking about this before the podcast, but like, there's a really out of out of nowhere spoilers, whatever. Um, there's a massive sort of sexual assault storyline in the magicians that it doesn't but go away. But you don't away. see coming. You don't see it coming and it doesn't I mean to its credit I think the show uh does some good things and some things of value around that storyline especially much later on there there is a sort of 
very it's somewhat on the nose but very like uh, coming from the right place uh, sort of uh, stuff around what survivorship looks like and how women can help one another be survivors in, in certain ways. Like, I don't think it totally nails all that stuff uh, by a long shot, but it 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 is not just uh, flopping a rape scene out there for for shock value and never doing anything with it. Like, but it's still fucking hard. Like, it's it's it's. It's not easy to watch that shit. Like, um, all right, here's an actual really good example. Um, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. The the rape scenes in both the Swedish and the American version of the the first film are really fucking hard to watch and uh, upsetting and disturbing. And like, I mean, the character takes revenge by raping the guy back. Like, it's not. It's it's fucking hard, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like it it's not fucking easy to wrestle with this stuff and and think about the morality of of what's kind of going on there. So if you want like a blanket case of of I can still appreciate a work and even enjoy a work. I mean, especially something like The Fall. Um, but that's a, that's it's a hard ask. It's a very heavy ask uh, of I think a lot of people uh, to watch that kind of stuff. I have a lighter example. <laughs> yeah. We, we talked about it a little bit. Uh, although I guess um, not sexual assault, but it, it does touch on harassment. I love romantic comedies. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite genres. <laughs> you know what you should never do? Oh, no. Is act like somebody in a romantic comedy film. That's correct. And this is the problem. Is that like, and I think I've talked about this a little bit on, on this show before, but like, Say Anything is a fantastic movie. I, I, I adore it. And I, haven't, I haven't seen it in a while. Maybe, maybe it's actually more problematic than I remember. I don't know. But I loved Say Anything. Lloyd Dobler is really, really cool. In that movie. In the magical <laughs> world of that movie. Where beyond doubt these two characters like do love each other. And there's just all this complicated life bullshit around them that's keeping them from being together. Right. In that magical reality, and even here, it's even here we're pushing it. Sure, Lloyd Dobler showing up with the fucking boombox and Peter Gabriel blasting <laughs> is a romantic and a romantic gesture and an unforgettable moment in image. Don't ever do that. Yep, don't do it. But the problem is, it's an entire genre predicated. On these things that like just don't they just don't work like the, but and the problem is the things these movies are saying about like love relationships a lot of these things are going to be consumed kind of uncritically and right. they're fucking crazy yeah like these are not like it's just it's 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 bad all the way down well if two people like really don't like each other at first that's just that just means there's sparks flying between oh, them. God. It's like yeah. no, it it could just be that you think each other are assholes, like, <laughs> and maybe you shouldn't interact that. Like, there's there's a whole lot happening in these movies, and and so like you know when it when it when not, the, not many good ones come around anymore, but you know you can go back and watch the these first movies. Thor movie, yeah, yeah, it's a good romantic comedy, sort of. It is, uh, and not freighted with all this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. Because he's more just a handsome stranger who comes into her life. Yeah. 
but yeah, but but uh, but like sort of the classic like two characters meet and they hate each other at first and they treat each other like shit, but then they fall in love is such a classic like romantic setup. Yeah. And then the way a lot of a lot of times it's executed is just full of like toxic garbage. And yet here I am, like, you know, watching these movies for the umpteenth time. Yeah. You know, let's 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 watch uh, Notting Hill again and <laughs> see these characters sort of manipulate each other and and treat each other like shit, uh, and until they they live happily ever after, like that kind of thing. Just even this in the middle of this conversation, I like. One of my biggest and most blaring ones, you know, of the ninety, the, the sorry, the eighties era, basically, um, like that fucking scene in Blade Runner. That's totally a rape, but we all love Blade Runner. Like, God, <laughs> it it won't make me stop loving Blade Runner. But Harrison Ford's character, sorry, Decker, sure does totally not take no for an answer. And there's this nice, sexy synth music in the background and. Yeah, okay, but that's not there great. Was this, there was this, like, either was a super cut or just a piece about, like, how that's kind of all his signature romantic roles. Like, it's that's totally how kind true. of all it's of like, them go. It's like, oh, in the 80s, Harrison Ford, like, your heroes taught you how to commit sexual assault. Like, there's a piece like that. I totally know what you're talking about. And it's like, yeah, actually, like. Yeah, yeah. like, it's it's just the whole. Um, that's not awesome. <laughs> yeah, like, like I mean, eighties action hero type stuff. Like, oh, it's just assumed that the girl will say yes. Yeah, no, and she's it's like, uh mm. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, it's more complicated in like in earlier eras when like the expectations for women were that like, like the whole like good girls like don't have sex right that that right. whole thing so right. you had this yeah. other social expectation where like consent was this weird like fucked up game that was like it was a different ecosystem but like by the time you're hitting harrison ford era right. we're where, in the like, 70s and 80s now and you're just leaning into these tropes of like women characters being like get away from me and he's like no i'm harrison ford here's right. the other thing though i know so many women who are really into Harrison Ford roles. Like I know. They fucking love these movies. Like like my girlfriend, like, you know, you want like if we're debating between several movies, the Harrison Ford one probably gets the nod. Like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean he was hot. Like there's no question. Like and he had a lot of like on screen charisma. It's just it's so I, I get it. Like I I get it. It's just very it's it's tough to to not see that stuff. Like again, the shittiest superpower. Oh, you can see sexual assault wherever it happens now that you know a little bit more about consent. And it's like Christ. Like yep. the the actual like realistic version of all these movies has uh, these women like talking to their friends and being like, "I think I was raped, dude." Like I did not say yes. Like I I I said no clearly, like verbally. It's yeah. Fuck. Yeah. It's this letter took us down a very 
good, I think, and and useful path. But it, and, it and sure has been a path. And the correspondence section. It has been a journey. <laughs> yeah, a I journey. think. I think the answer <laughs> to the last part of Will's question: By what means were you able to look past your personal politics? Uh, we didn't, but sometimes we like how stuff tastes. Yeah. So we just accept that that side order of like noxious toxic yeah. garbage so that we can have the delicious uh you know salty greasy treat of right. grat- of popular gratification yeah i think that's the perfect way of putting it and there are times where i still choke on that toxic side uh, side dish like no question so yeah this is this is a thing to wrestle with and i think it's a thing that's important to wrestle with uh if you if you want to kind of know yourself and know how media is important to folks and how it uh how it's important in general in in society and tells stories and tells us things about what we think of as norms so yeah uh with that on that note i'm gonna go to uh maybe maybe something that's less toxic maybe it's still toxic i don't know i i don't know what your weekend project is rob but you should tell me what it is yeah, so I've been watching Billions. Oh, the Showtime right. you drama. You did mention that, yes. <laughs> the Showtime drama starring Paul Giamatti and oh, Damian good. Lewis. Good. As two adversaries on Wall Street. Oh, man. Paul Giamatti is kind of a gross, awful district uh, U.S. attorney. And Damian Lewis is just a like Gordon Gecko like Wall Street a moral cool. big swinging dick. Yeah, yeah. And they live in super like alpha broy cultures and uh a lot of the a lot of the show is just them setting tests for each other and the people around them and forcing them to sort of jump through these hurdles and the first season like so okay, so basically like in some ways, Billions is the <laughs> if the people who made Entourage <laughs> watched The Wire. Oh God! But then wanted to make it about um like a Michael Lewis novel or yeah. something. Not a novel, but like a Michael Lewis book. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the vibe. It's like entourage sensibilities in some ways, but like also it's really interested in like long-term criminal investigation <laughs> and like uh you know, you know fraud charges and stuff like that. I don't think the show has a great grasp of finance law, but it's sure. you know, it, it does better than a lot of shows, uh, I suspect. But yeah. Uh so the thing is the first season, like, I was just kind of slogging through it on the strength of the Paul Giamatti and Damien Lewis performances. Uh, and actually, they're, they're, they're surrounded by some, some, really good, um, some really good actors and actresses. Uh, what? So, the, the, yeah, it's Maggie Siff. So, <laughs> sort of the original uh, bone of contention between... Uh, the two characters is that the U.S. attorney's wife is this woman, Wendy Rhodes, played by Maggie Siff, who is like the performance coach at the Wall Street Bank. 
so she's like working for the enemy and she has this like <laughs> weird slightly sexually charged energy with the you know evil ceo and paul giamatti's character can't stand it it's so sort of fight for her affections uh but what's cool in season two is she sort of ends season one by stepping out of that role and it's just like fuck off i can't stand being in the middle of this and i'm gonna hmm. find find my own way and yeah. so season two starts looking at like at this like douchebag palooza from these outside perspectives and it starts going in some more interesting directions while at the same time still being utterly ridiculous like it is <laughs> it is so like turned up to 11 in in how these things go down uh tons of like conference room showdowns uh people being arrested on the set of like financial shows uh, but then you do have like some really effective scenes about like <laughs> some really effective scenes of counseling um, of, of Wendy Rhodes sort of like trying to get people to see past their own like deep seated uh, stunted views uh, that, you know, that, that can be really, really cool. Um yeah, so it's 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 kind of this weird confection. Oh, I for, I forgot the I forgot the other really cool angle happening in the yeah. season. Uh there is a character that is that shows up in the den of pure douche broiness uh, at the <laughs> at Axe Capital. The dude's name is literally Bobby Axelrod. He's he, he does Axe Capital. God. Um yeah, so he runs this like complete like this complete like douche bro hellhole. <laughs> but in season two, there's this young, brilliant analyst, uh, played by I think Asia Kate Dillon. Okay. Uh, who goes by they. Uh she's not identified as male or female. Okay. And it's actually kind of cool how well the show handles it. Like it doesn't play as if this is going to be something that's going to be easy for everyone to adapt to in the environment of that office, but also it's made very clear that, like, this character deserves to be there. Yeah, yeah. And so real quickly, like, the word comes down from the top, like, no, like, this character goes by they, that's how you refer to them. Yeah. Uh, you, you'll yeah. give them that courtesy. It also allows this character to become kind of to provide a much needed outsider perspective to these characters. Right. So now that there's someone else in the room, when these guys are being like douchebag assholes to be like, you know what you guys are doing is completely destructive and awful. Yeah. And they actually have to respond to it because they respect the source. That's the other cool thing that's happening in this. It's like not something you see, like a lot of shows don't even like go in this direction that much. Yeah. Um, and it's it's cool to see billions of all shows do that. That's really heartening, actually, to hear. I like it when that sort of thing happens. Um. All right, I might have to give it a shot. Maybe we'll see. Add it add it to the increasingly hilarious list of stuff. So, Rob, I have found a show that is maybe second only to The Expanse right now in my. Okay in my sci-fi watching, which has been wonderfully uh, robust this year. Um, it is a sci-fi series on the USA Network. It is called Colony, 
And it's it's fairly new. The first season was last year. The second season, I think, was, has been maybe just finished. I just marathoned the first season this week. So it's all I'm aware of. Uh, I know it's kind of ongoing. It is. <clears throat> Basically, uh, aliens came to Earth. They knew everything about us. And they sort of separated people into colonies, like super, super ultra controlled. There's walls around L.A. And uh, we're really only super aware of the L.A. colony. Uh, There's a few colonies around America. We don't know much about them. There's no more computers. There's no more cell phones. Uh, Everybody, there's a curfew at midnight. Everybody has to kind of do their job. And, And most jobs are sort of utility jobs at this point. You know, water, power, you know, keeping things running. There's a rudimentary police force. Actually, there's a very, the only people who are allowed to use like cell phones and and really much technology are the cops. And they're called red hats. The aliens run everything with the help of sort of the human ruling class that they appointed. Uh, they killed basically everybody who was in real power the second they got to Earth and like destroyed everything else and said, hey, you have some experience doing this. You're in charge now, basically. Um And it is this just fascinating and very action-oriented and very, very, very exciting exploration of of a brutal fascist government first, and then also a a, a, what what the fuck would you do second? Because the core uh, cast, it is, uh, it's Josh Holloway, and he's actually an executive producer, I think, too. Uh, and he plays uh, this guy who he was like an ex army special forces guy who went into hiding uh, an ex FBI guy, you know, special forces. And then he's in the FBI. He's this, you know, super cop. He always gets his man. And he kind of went into hiding uh, as a mechanic or something when the whole thing kind of went down because everybody was dropping like flies. And his wife, Sarah Wayne uh, Callies, who is. Uh, interested in the resistance. There's sort of a human resistance who are, you know, uh, called a terrorist group by the aliens and by the government, but who are trying to eke out some kind of uh, resistance to this government and want, they they want freedom. You know, that's what they want, obviously. In the very first episode, he is caught trying to find their son who is in a nearby colony, uh, the Santa Monica colony, I think. And they find out his background and say, oh, you can have a job working for the government, finding this resistance. And the wife is in the resistance. He doesn't really know it at first. He knows she's into something, uh, but she's working for the resistance. He's super cop. And there's this just delicious tension there uh, in in sort of, it's like a reverse of the Americans in a lot of ways. Like this couple, they're both wearing all these masks and they're both kind of doing all this subterfuge and doing all this exciting stuff. But instead of being on the same team together, they're pretending to be on the same team together. And it's it's good. It's really, really good. Um, yeah, I marathon the fucking the whole first season in like a week, which for me right now and with my free time available right now is like... Uh, Wait, so where a, can I watch this commercial free? Achievement. Um, I'm watching it on Amazon, so... Oh, you know, $3 so dollars an episode, but... Oh, okay. You know. Oh, so you're paying real money. I'm paying real money to watch this. I mean, okay. we, we do that with our Amazon shows because it's like fine or whatever, but... Yeah. Uh, also, I should shout out my lovely girlfriend, as usual, who, as usual, found the show and is totally paying to, for us to watch the show. So it's, 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 it's her. She gets credit if she's listening. She doesn't really listen to this podcast, but it's fine. If she's listening right now. That the credit goes to her. Um, it is, it is so good. It is so well done. It does a lot of the interesting stuff of 
you know, a show that has nothing to do with sci-fi, but is just looking at uh, systems of oppression and, and like, oh, what, what is it like to be in this regime? What is it like to want to fight this regime? What, what are kind of the key players? And, and it's looking a lot at this sort of banality of evil stuff. You know, this sniveling asshole uh, has been put in charge of the colony and he thinks he's doing a great job because he's less oppressive than people are in other colonies. Like he, he at least allows, you know, uh, for there to be a couple of bars open and, you know, people yeah. to have some kind of recreation whatsoever, basically. Uh, unlike, you know, what you hear about, you hear about the other colonies being even worse all the time. And this LA colony is like a, the most free colony, but it's still this incredibly oppressive, horrible, horrible place. Um, where, you know, you'll be killed if you're out after curfew. Just no question. You're just going to die. Uh, you know, the police brutality, the scenes of police brutality are really, really pretty extreme and uh, kind of chilling in our current world. And this is a modern show. You know, it started in 2016. So it's very clearly, I think, uh, knows <laughs> that it's going to hit some some pretty serious buttons. Um, and God, it's well written. No, it is. it is not like... It's not, it's not on, like, the Americans' level. When I made that comparison to the Americans, like, I, I consider the writing in the Americans to be, and the acting, to be, like, kind of a cut above anything else on TV. Oh, yeah, no. It's, like, it's not there, for sure. But it is hitting at a lot of that in respectable ways, I think, especially with the core relationship. And the, the actors are really good. They're really selling this shit, and it's awesome. And there's this, one of my favorite characters is this amazing kind of badass dude who is ex-military and he also kind of went underground and he actually uh is one of the resistance leaders and you know he's this chameleon who by day he is one of the cops he actually works for those cops doing all of this stuff and then by night he's he's you know setting up the bombs and and recruiting people and figuring out you know how to make a resistance be effective in the slightest against aliens that have technology beyond anything we can imagine and also the much worse thing being like people who are given the power to be complete assholes and run with it. Uh, so it's God, it's so good. <laughs> it is a lot of things I love, you know, with the sci-fi and also the like politics of abuse and the, and the politics of fascism and, and freedom and you know, all that, all that really good stuff. It also looks great. It actually like has a real budget. So, you know, the sci-fi nice. stuff actually looks awesome. Like the drones actually look like terrifying and realistic. And uh, they very smartly only ever give you the tiniest inkling of what the aliens are ever like. You know, they're just sprinklings of clues. And that, of course, makes it incredibly exciting when you when you learn anything about them. It's like, oh, yeah, give me give me that good lore, like a little tiny bit of that lore, just a little tiny dusting of it. Uh, so, yeah, it's. It's really good. So that's Colony. I'm I, I'm sure it's streaming on other things, but it is on Amazon. You can just buy that and enjoy for yourself if you're interested in a little, little good dystopian sci-fi in our <laughs> own current dystopia. That that sounds pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Um, you really need to watch Occupied, by the way. Oh I'm God. Gonna, I'm just gonna slide that across the table. Yeah, you, Occupied. Just, yeah. Was that that Norwegian show? Yeah. I started it, Rob. I meant to tell you I started it and then I got waylaid with something else. But I, I did watch that first episode and I was like, holy shit, this is great. And need to go back to it for sure. Yeah. it. Uh, 
Boy, does it read differently in the wake of the election. I'll tell you that. Oh, God. I'm sure. I, like, I'm watching. I'm like, no way could this happen. Oh. And then. Like, yeah. And now I'm like, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, on that happy note, uh, fellow citizens, uh, to this pirate radio channel, <laughs> Idol Weekend, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. Uh, this episode of Idol Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net to keep up with the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. Awesome. And you can tell your, you know, your wife who might be a spy. You can tell your husband who might be in the FBI. You can tell your pets. You can tell your friends. You can tell anybody that you think might enjoy Idle Weekend about us because word of mouth helps us out so, so much. We really do appreciate it. We'd also appreciate it if you could take a second and rate us on iTunes. That helps us out very, very much, and it means the universe to us. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. (laughs) 